This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Scott Jones on reading the Psalms for spiritual theology. Scott Jones is professor of biblical studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Since joining the Covenant faculty in 2005, Scott Jones has received a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary and published a number of written works on the Psalms and other Old Testament subjects. In this episode, Scott gives an in-depth discussion on the Psalms and how they relate to spiritual theology. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered in June 2019 at the PCA General Assembly in Dallas, Texas. Let's listen to Scott Jones on the Psalms and Spiritual Theology. So um, this is not simple. I have not simply lifted a lecture that I give to my college students and giving it and giving it to you. Uh, these are things that we all cover in the course that I'll teach, but it is something I tried to uh, shape uh, more specifically to this uh, situation. Um, that said, it also means that it's not something I've done a hundred times and I've got it memorized. So uh, I'm going to stick a little close to my notes more than I would. Normally when you teach things, you just go and I'm not going to do that this morning because um, it's also distracting if you get lose track. So I'll stick a little closer to my notes. Um, but please feel free at any time to interject, raise your hand, ask questions. And I'll also pause throughout and, and you can ask questions. Okay? Um, so let's start with, with prayer. Thank you, our Lord, that you have given us the Psalms. Thank you that you have revealed to us your word, made known to us your ways and your will shown us who you are and have incarnated all of that in the person of Jesus Christ. We'd ask that this time this morning would be fruitful, that it would be beneficial, uh, that it would be an act of service and an act of worship, um, and that we may know just a bit better um, at the end of the hour how we might think about the Psalms. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so um, as you'll see on your handout uh, about seven main points or so. And on the back, um, I've also listed, you've probably seen this already, uh, some resources that I think are really useful for Psalms in the spiritual life and commentaries that focus on um, Psalms and spirituality or uh, that offer fresh translations that you may be unfamiliar with. That's part of the reason I put a couple of translations there. One of the best things that I find for uh, seeing a piece of literature anew, even in the Bible, is finding a translation that you never use. Um, now, this Bible, even this is from Prague, you recognize this book cover, but um, these two. Um, I use this Bible since junior high, which is why they know it. And so I use the same Bible all the time, but there, there, are really time, there are times when it's really useful to defamiliarize yourself and to hear, you can just hear words in just a new way. And it may be just this little turn and it creates this whole new experience. So I highly recommend those things to you, uh, different translations of any kind to supplement the kinds of familiarity that you need and also highly recommend the one Bible with all the notes and all that. That's great too. Okay. So, um, okay. So what are the Psalms? So, uh, I'll start with a a brief overview of what I think the Psalms are, at least in the period of their composition, uh, and also during the period of their reception in the New Testament, because the Psalms are used a lot in the New Testament. So what are the Psalms during that time? The Psalms are ancient Israelite songs that were composed in a wide variety of situations by a wide variety of people 
that address God and that also address one's enemies in a wide variety of ways. It's a wide variety. Some of these psalms arose out of the life of the king as an ideal man of suffering, prayer, and triumph over enemies. Others arose out of the life of the Israelite and Judean communities as pilgrims made their way toward the presence of God in the temple each year. Uh, These were songs for the journey. Others were composed in exile in Babylonia after the Babylonians had destroyed the Jerusalem temple and had uh, taken the king captive and had taken people over to Babylonia. Once it seemed like all had been lost, the land lay in ruin, the temple of God had been destroyed. Essentially, people are saying, is God dead? Is the covenant broken? How can we exist? And still others were composed as literary pieces to instruct or even to orient readers and hearers to the main theological themes of the whole collection of psalms. So um, that's only a few. The psalms are quite varied in where they came from and what they were used for and what their purposes were, at least in their original context, whatever those were. The Psalms were still being used in myriad ways in the New Testament period, but one thing we see more than anything is that the Psalms were recited and read as prophetic texts, which is a strange thing to say about the Psalms, right? Um, that's not, that doesn't mean that they were texts that were primarily focused on predicting the future, though some did look like uh, they anticipated a messianic king that we know was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, but it does have a lot to say about their delivery and their power uh, as um, delivered by Oracle to David, who is considered to be a prophet uh, during um, the Jewish period and during the period of the New Testament. David was thought to be a prophet because he spoke the Oracle of God. The David connection was critical in the use of the Psalms by the New Testament writers, as you know. Throughout the Gospels and Acts, the Epistles of Paul, the Letter of the Hebrews, the Psalms are drawn upon again and again to make the connection between Jesus Christ as Messiah and the Son of David alluded to in the Psalter. Um, For example, the book of Hebrews would have almost nothing in it in the first two or three chapters if it were not for Psalms 8, Psalms 110, for example. In fact, the Psalter is among the most cited books by New Testament writers. It's critical not only for its place in public worship, but also as a witness to the coming of the Messiah. So it should be unsurprising that it's still popular to print the New Testament together with the Psalms as a sort of abridged Bible, right? You see the New Testament in Psalms and you think, well, how does that make sense? Well, it kind of does make sense. Um, However... When we think about our appeal, how the Psalms appeal to us, or how they even appeal to the general populace, a lot of times people who are not Christians and don't pretend to be Christians will know something about the Psalms. Um, Or not Jews, don't pretend to be Jews, will know something about the Psalms. Um, they They may not know any of that. So what is appealing about the Psalms to them? It's probably not things about Israelite and Judean history. Uh, so, so what's going on there? This is um, where we see it as an anthology of human emotions and expressions. So those descriptions don't exhaust what the Psalms are, and most people don't even know about most of that stuff. And there's something about the Psalter that appeals to even broader spectrum of people, and I think those things primarily have to do with, with two aspects. First, the range of personal emotions expressed in the Psalms, And two, the use of psalms for personal devotion. One contemporary Jewish scholar notes, the book of Psalms is the Bible's book of the soul. And I think that's sort of what's going on when we connect with the psalms and the psalms connect with us. There's something that burrows down deep about the the soul, about being human, about human expression, human emotion. This sentiment has a long history. Uh, in the 17th century, John Calvin said of the Psalms, quote, For not an affection will anyone find in himself whose image is not reflected in this mirror. All the griefs, sorrows, fears, misgivings, hopes, cares, anxieties, in short, 
all the disquieting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated, the Holy Spirit hath here pictured exactly. Unquote. In other words, through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord breathed out an anthology of personal resources that all people from all times can relate to in some way. And Martin Luther said much the same thing earlier than Calvin in his second preface to the Psalms in 1528. He even called the Psalms a little, it was, he said it's like a little Bible in that it contains almost everything that's in the Bible in miniature. And I think that's a really great way to think about the Psalter. The earliest handbook for using the Psalms for personal devotion, though, as opposed to, say, using it for congregational singing, which is the way it would have been used quite often, is in a letter written by St. Athanasius of Alexandria to Marcellinus of Carthage. Uh, Marcellinus was a a friend of Augustine of Hippo, so we're right around um, 4th century, basically. In this letter, Athanasius recounts the words of a certain studious old man who seemed to have been a kind of mentor for him in the Psalter. And he likens the Psalms to a garden, and I very much like that that metaphor. The Psalms are a garden, which grows fruit not only of its own kind, but also fruit much like what you find in other books of the Bible. So what he's saying in in this, um, this letter to Marcellinus is that Each book normally has a kind of fruit that it bears, and it's characteristic fruit for that corpus, whereas the Psalms not only bears a fruit of its own corpus, but bears all the other fruits of all the other corpora as well. Um, And that letter can be found, it's also in your handout, but it it can be found as an appendix to um, Athanasius's On the Incarnation. Um, Beyond what it shares with other books, uh, says... Athanasius to Marcellinus, it also has what he calls a peculiar marvel of its own. This marvel is that within the Psalter, all the movements of the human soul are represented and portrayed in all their great variety. And despite the fact that the Psalms were written by prophets of old, one reads it and is struck by the fact that it is a one is seeing or oneself in the mirror or reading one's own words. And that's the remarkable thing about the Psalter is that it's very ancient and it's clearly someone else's words. But when you read it and it reflects back to you, it seems like you're reading your own words. And in fact, you can make them your own words. And we talk more about that. Uh, in this respect, it is a mirror, as Calvin said, um, wherein the reader sees himself and his own soul. But not only does the Psalter as a mirror reveal one's condition, it also gives one's words to pray in numerous situations in those conditions. Each of the various types of psalms can be drawn upon in times of need as befits the situation. So one of the things I I believe that I imagine you're attuned to, um, and uh, I have become attuned to through teaching the Psalms and reading about the Psalms more in the past 20 or 30 years, is using the Psalms as prayers. Um, I think it's fair to say that in a broad American evangelical tradition um, that tends to focus more on personal experience and personal expression, um, we value... um, extemporaneous, individualized prayers as the most genuine expressions. Sometimes um, it seems like a cop-out, especially those of us who are fairly anti-liturgical, to draw upon something that was written by someone else a long time ago, even though we all do it. It it sort of bothers us at sometimes more than others. And uh, the fact of the matter is the Psalms are a wonderful resource Uh, to use as our own prayers during various situations, various times of need. The fact of the matter is, as well, um, I often don't have the words. I often can't feel rightly, speak rightly, think rightly. So in this way, you could call it a crutch if you want. I would call it um, an instrument of healing uh, that one can draw upon the words of the Psalter And a remarkable dynamic is uh, repeating 
it's, it's as if one is repeating God's words back to him. Um, praying to God what God has given to you. And Eugene Peterson's book does a remarkable job on that. Um, Psalms as tools for prayer. Um, yeah. So, uh, that's the, what one might call an anthological approach to the Psalter. It's an anthology. You think about anthologies as in English lit classes, you know, where they collect things together and later on normally use them as a doorstop or something because they're that big or you throw them away. Or maybe there's a couple of things in there that you really liked and you might hold on to it just for that and you just pick and choose what you like. Um, it's a garden containing a wide variety of emotions and expressions that may be picked out and applied to the situation at hand for the spiritual benefit of those who recite, sing, and pray the Psalms. That is completely valid. It's, that is great. And part of what I think that that means, too, is that um, we familiarize ourselves with these types of Psalms, where they are, so that we know when we need a tool from our toolbox, so to speak, we know where to go. Um, Sort of like Proverbs talks about a fitting word at the right time. Um, You know where to go in the Psalter and which prayer you need at that time. But um, is the book of Psalms more than an anthology of individual songs and prayers? It certainly is an anthology and there's nothing wrong with that, but is there anything else going on? Is there a narrative arc to the Psalter? Is there a message of the whole thing? I think the answer is yes, but there's a lot of different ways to slice that pie. And I'd like to focus just for a bit on some of the main elements of the book of Psalms as we have it today that suggest it was put together in such a way that does tell a story, so to speak. Understanding the Psalms according to this story can be a really good supplement to the pick and choose method, which is totally valid, but it can supplement that. Finally, the book of Psalms is a book of praises. The Psalter contains three main types of Psalms with many subtypes. And these three main types are lament, prayers of thanksgiving, and hymns of praise. Um, And of these three main types, the Psalms of lament, or sometimes they're called complaint Psalms. I kind of like that because it helps me feel not so unholy about complaining, but it probably still is. Um, as they're sometimes called, make up more than one-third of the whole Psalter. So the large majority of any of the types of psalms are lament psalms or complaint psalms. Um, And there's been a lot of work in the past uh, 20, 30 years, in Western Christianity at least, to try to uh, give some more traction, so to speak, to public lament. Um, there, look, cultures all around the world have been doing this for thousands of years, and it's been okay. But um, there is something to certain types of Christianity, maybe especially in America, that has valued um, other types of expression where lament has been uh, less commonly employed. But the Psalter itself is uh, primarily, if it's primarily anything, it's primarily lament. Um, but it's not only the myth, and that's also really important. Um, in light of that fact, I think it's really surprising that the title of the book of Psalms in the Hebrew tradition is Book of Praises. Sefer Tehillim. It's Book of Praises. That doesn't mean that praise is necessarily the most important um, thing or that it's more important than lament or thanksgiving, but I do think it is critical because it shows, I think, where the narrative of the whole book is going. And so I think that movement from lament to praise, which makes up the Psalter, um, at the first of the Psalter, you have a great deal of lament. At the end of the Psalter, you have a great deal of praise, that there is this movement from lament to praise that somehow marks um, not only perhaps our day, where we rise in the morning and offer our prayers to the Lord, in hope to be heard so that we can offer a prayer of thanksgiving and offer testimony before the public com- congregation of praise for the Lord who answers prayer, but also uh, for the arc of our lives. Um, I think it's difficult because some people might take this arc as to, to say, um, if I'm not moving from lament to praise, almost as if it's supposed to mirror um, 
a progressive sanctification. You know, I'm now at this part of my life. Why am I not praising more? I think that's very dangerous. So that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you're going to get over the lament and you're going to get to the praise. Um, But I do think that it suggests that um, the end goal, the chief end, so to speak, is is praise. And that can happen to different people at different times in different ways. But we all know that it will happen um, in, when the kingdom is finally realized and every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, pause. Some of you may uh, have read some on the Psalms and you may have heard different people talk about types of Psalms. Right? So if you read an introduction to the Psalter, um, like one that I use in my uh, Old Testament class, at least a chapter, maybe two, maybe three, will be on classifications of psalms. And, and you're going to learn things like, these are the royal psalms, and these are the wisdom psalms, right? And these are the complaint psalms, and these are psalms thanksgiving. Oh, these are psalms thanksgiving the individual, psalms thanksgiving of, of the community, or all these sort of subtypes, right? It's not totally lacking in use, but I do not recommend that as the way to think that if you know the types, you're going to get uh, the psalms right. The way that those types worked out are largely based on um, 19th century critical scholarship that are trying actually not to tell you how best you should use the Psalms, but to try to reconstruct something that was going on in the life of the communities of ancient Israel and Judah um, a long time ago, especially in the cultus, which what that means is the the temple courts, uh, with the priests, and all that sort of thing. Um, I don't think that it actually has a lot of traction in personal use, and so I make my students learn it because it's a part of the tradition of scholarship about the Psalms, and it's not totally unuseful. But that's not where I say, if you learn those, then you're really going to get where you need to go. Um, Because it's one thing that if you, we all know that if you misinterpret the genre of something, um, that one can read it uh, quite badly. Um, This is where, uh, well, you know what I mean. Um, But in many of these cases in the Psalter, they're just not that difficult. Like, I don't need to be able to say that this is a Thanksgiving psalm of the individual to know that the person's giving thanks. So I, I wouldn't, what I'm saying is, if you get a book like this, I wouldn't camp out there and think this is going to be the thing that helps me. I actually don't think it's that helpful for personal devotion. Okay, so in short, the Psalter moves um, from lament being its primary expression to ending in overwhelming praise. Patrick Miller writes about this movement from lament to praise by setting up the whole Psalter as an elaboration to the answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which you probably all know. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, of course, is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, Pat Miller writes, the Psalms are not simply individual prayers for personal use and having only to do with personal situations. They deal with the whole of our life, in community as well as in private. From beginning to end, it is clear that the matter at hand is the rule of the Lord. The goal of the Psalter is encompassed in the words of Psalm 2:11: serve the Lord with fear. So the very first chapters of the Psalms, he says, focus especially on the way not to go. And you see that in Psalm 1, Psalm 2, avoid doing this. Don't stand in the council of sinners in the assembly of the wicked. Go this other direction. By the end of the first book of Psalms, and if you don't know what I mean when I say first book of Psalms, we'll get to that in a minute, um, we are told more about the way we are to go. And the Psalter itself moves in this very way. Just as lament, Psalms move from complaint to trust, so also the book of Psalms moves from lament to praise. The end of the Psalms is all about praise, with the last five Psalms in the Psalter all ending with the exclamation, Hallelujah. This is the way in which all God's people are going. As Miller says, the literary end of the Psalter seems to carry us to the end. 
Um, Pat is <laughs> Pat was my teacher. He's not doing well, and uh, um, I'm thinking about him dying <laughs> very soon. The literary end of the Psalter seems to carry us to the end of our existence. Engulfed forever in the glory and joy of the Lord. This is our chief end. So, sorry if that's distracting to you. That happens to me. One of the unusual things about the Psalms in comparison to other biblical books, is that it is self-consciously arranged into five separate books. So this is where your handout's going to come in useful. Most English Bibles have headings that mark these as book one, book two, book three, and so forth. There's some debate over how and why the Psalms seem to have been put together this way, but it seems likely that it's in part a conscious imitation of the tradition of the five books of Moses. So, you know, um, in your Bibles, where you'll see, it'll say something like book one, Psalms 1 to 41, book two, Psalm 42, that kind of thing. That is something that seems to have been an ancient tradition. Um, And this is what I mean when I say the books of the Psalter. Okay. Um, so there are five books of the Psalms, just as there were five books of Moses. What's going on there? Uh, it seems like um, Jewish tradition set David up as a kind of new giver of instruction. Not to supplant the Torah of Moses, but uh, a different type of instruction. Um, so David had his five books. Um, and as Psalm 1 attests, the Psalter is focused around the law or instruction, Torah, just as the Pentateuch is. Okay, so that's part of the idea of what's going on there. Exactly what's going on in each of these five books and how they relate to each other has been the subject of a lot of Psalm scholarship in the past 30 years. Um, and the handout that you have in front of you is one sort of widely accepted um, reading as to their relationship in the narrative structure of the Psalter as a whole, especially by an American scholar named Gerald Wilson, who's now dead, um, started, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the early 80s, started writing on this sort of, the Psalms as canon, the Psalms in their canonical structure and that kind of thing. The Bible compares the church to a house. If that's the case, the PCA Administrative Committee is the plumbing of the church. Its work is mostly hidden from view, and you don't appreciate it until it breaks. The AC provides churches, presbyteries, and the assembly with the expertise and action needed to keep their ministries moving forward. They don't set the agenda for the PCA. They just make sure its agenda is accomplished. Their vital work depends on generous churches and individuals like you. Learn more about them at PCAAC.org. So, if you were to look at that handout, okay. First, Psalms 1 and 2 form a, a double introduction. Oh, thank you very much. A double introduction to the Psalter's purpose. So, if you look at the Psalms, what Psalms 1 and 2 are doing is they're sort of introducing you to the Psalter as a whole and to two primary aspects of what the, the whole Psalter is. Um, in Psalm 1, the Psalter is especially instruction about the way to go and the way not to go, and it actually sets up the whole of the Psalter as instruction about these two ways. And you know, that sounds a lot like what book of the Bible? Proverbs. Right. And so here's one of those things where you have uh, this sort of feel of a wisdom flavor or something like that, a didactic flavor to the Psalter. And I think that the Psalter is indeed put together in part to instruct on these two ways, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked, right? the way of the one who flourishes and is called blessed and fortunate by those who see him or her, and the way of the one who's doomed, the way of the one who accepts the reign and rule of the messianic king and shows um, 
and is subservient to and shows loyalty to the Messianic king, the one who rebels against the Messianic king. There are two ways, and that's always true. In wisdom literature is true in Proverbs, and it's true in the Psalms. There are two ways. There's not three, there are not four, not one. It's two. Um, Psalm 2, as you, you may well know about Psalm 2, um, and hopefully Psalm 1 as well, is a so-called royal psalm proclaiming this um, enthronement of the Messianic king. Um, and this famous line that's actually really interesting in the history of tradition, kiss the son, right, lest he be angry, or whatever, however you're supposed to translate that. Um, note the structuring into various books. Books 1, 2, 3, and 4 all end with this um, proclamation, blessed is the Lord, amen. Uh, and, it, and it seems like um, that marks a sort of boundary or limit between these books, right? Blessed is the Lord, amen. Blessed is the Lord, amen. Blessed is the Lord, amen. Um, one, another thing that I think some of these editing clues suggest is that it's a royal book focused on the Davidic king who is a Messiah figure. And you'll see royal psalms that are put at really important junctures throughout the Psalter. Psalm 2, for example. Psalm 72, about Solomon. Psalm 89, about the Davidic covenant and its failure uh, temporarily. Note that uh, this turn in the book is really, really critical. The one between Psalm 89 and 90. If you had as like, there's an axis. Um, Psalm 88, of course, is, is often called the black sheep of the Psalter because it doesn't end in praise. It's the only complaint psalm that doesn't end in praise. I think the last word of it is darkness. Um, and I have to look again in Hebrew, but I think it is. Um, and then that's it. Psalm 89 is all about, has the covenant failed? Where is God? The Davidic covenant seems to have been broken. What's going on? So there's this sort of watershed here between Psalm 89 and Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, you certainly start getting a psalms of, it's a psalm of Moses. And you're like, well, that's before David. Right. And so what happens is, in light of the crisis of the seeming failure of the covenant, and the uh, Davidic line not being sustained, um, Israel is, looks backward. And this is one of the great, great tools that we have available to us if we are willing to take note and make testimony is looking back. In Israel, they're always asked to look back. And so they look back to a time prior to the establishment of kingship, when Moses was their leader. And very, very soon on the heels of Psalm 90, you get Psalm 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, um, 99. These are the so-called enthronement psalms. And every one of those psalms says the Lord is king. So the idea there is <clears throat> David is not king. And that's a really big problem. There's no Davidic king in David's line. But the Lord is still king. And the Lord has always been king. The Lord is king before we ever had a David. And so it's a way to try to orient themselves to this new situation by reminding themselves of what is truly at the foundation of the kingdom and is truly at the foundation of what Israel is, is that the Lord reigns. And so you see those kinds of movements in the Psalms, um, that this idea that the Psalter might have a narrative that you can read sequentially can help you, can help you see. And then finally, <clears throat> there are five psalms at the very end that are called the final Hallel, Psalms 146 to 150, all end in praise. This is not some sort of a key as if, oh, I understand the five books now, it all makes sense, as if it's the one thing that you have to get. But I do think that it is really helpful because I think that the psalms are put together in such a way to teach us about um, <clears throat> the uh, kingship of the Lord the kingship of the Messiah, the, um, our role in being subservient to that Messiah and serving that Lord uh, in continuing to choose the righteous path in the righteous way, um, to, be, uh, to consort among those who are, are righteous, not among those who are wicked. What you'll find is very surprising. You start reading the Psalms, <clears throat> notice how much, especially in the first book of Psalms, you will see so much talk about words, speech, and money. 
like you're reading Proverbs. But that's, it's very, very much important focus of the first book of Psalms. That what, what you say and what people do with their tongues and what people do with their money. It's really remarkable. Um, <clears throat> but that all of this is done as a community uh, that uh, has its high points and its low points in which the feeling of God's kingship ebbs and flows. God's kingship is, is eternal and unchanging, but our sense that, um, of how it's realized in our lives because of the nature of our lives, back and forth. And so you have psalms in every one of those situations to draw upon, um, and it's totally valid to draw upon all of those in all of those situations. Um, as another side note, one thing that I think is really useful is as you get, as we pray, it's very common to get in ruts. You know, where you pray the sort of the same ways and the same kinds of things. One of the things, though, that I do find, and remember, I was sort of critiquing the idea that it's really important to learn the different types of psalms and, you know, be able to say that's of that kind of, that's of that kind, is that um, <clears throat> I have used those profitably, not really now, but I, I did in the past, where I would force myself to go through certain types and pray certain things. So, for example, I remember walking around this lake in Orlando in seminary, and there are lakes everywhere, but, you know, walking around and saying, okay, what about my now praising God for God's acts in history? What about now a lament because of personal suffering? What about now a praise uh, for God's redeeming me from suffering? What about, do you see what I'm saying? And that way, um, it sort of, it, it can diversify your range of expression and experience in using the Psalms um, and can remind you that there's more to prayer, though it's a critical part. There's more to prayer than just asking for something, which is, again, totally legitimate. Um, but it can help expand that a little bit. And that's, even that's really, really helpful. Okay, so what's so special about the Psalms? <clears throat> um, don't other cultures have psalms? Aren't there psalms in the ancient Near East? And what can we learn about our psalms that are helpful or different from those psalms? Well, um, these other cultures had psalms too. Uh, lament psalms, thanksgiving psalms, and um, psalms of praise. The uh, lament psalms are um, really quite similar in many respects, between the Bible and these other cultures, uh, you, you normally will find lament based on things like personal suffering, illness, uh, social adversity, one's friends have turned against somebody, turned against you, betrayed you, uh, divine disapproval or anger. And normally those things are all of a piece. So in Psalm 6, for example, if you turn to Psalm 6, you see the psalmist talking about how his bones are wasting away and all of his enemies are encroaching upon him and God must be really, really angry with him. Um, that's typical stuff of lament. Um, interestingly, uh, what you see in um, Mesopotamian culture, for example, about laments is that um, this was, they're often connected closely with incantations to, to ward off evil. And um, that's not how we would talk about it, of course, um, because of the way that we, uh, the God we believe in. But there was this sense that there is this thing bearing down on me and that, that must be, have, have this spell, right? Some of these similarities, though, you know, can raise questions if the Bible is so similar to other things, in what way is it unique? And we're going to get to that in, in just a second. But it also just simply reminds us of the fact that the divine word of God was revealed first to an ancient people who were very much a part of their time and place and who expressed themselves in ways that were similar to their neighbors, as one might expect. And, and I think that it's an important part of our engagement with biblical literature to remind ourselves constantly of two things, that the word of God is near to us and that the word of God is to us and joined, um, is given to us through the power of the, the Holy Spirit and so it is close, it is relevant, and it's personal, it is near. Um, and yet, 
one, it's just a remarkable fact that it also comes from a culture that it can seem quite foreign to us. And the foreignness is what can be really scary sometimes, but it's also, I think, can be really helpful and sobering in some ways. This is not our world, but it is God's word to us that is perfectly fitting for our world. Thanksgiving Psalms. Uh, the biblical Psalter also contains Thanksgiving Psalms, which are kind of praise for deliverance from adversity. The body of the psalmist has been healed. The enemies have been put away. God's anger has been appeased. Um, one of the things that's really, really interesting to note about Thanksgiving Psalms is that it uh, is helpful in drawing a connection between Psalms and Leviticus. And you think, mm, I don't like Leviticus. And, you know, you definitely like Psalms. You probably definitely don't like Leviticus. I get it. It's really hard, and that's one of the places where it's most foreign. Um, but in fact, the Psalter, these prayers, these Psalms of Thanksgiving, for example, did have a history in a liturgical setting where a person would go before a priest, and the priest would say, it's not like the person could read, and they would say, help, pray this prayer. Here's what needs to happen. And they would pray that prayer. In fact, in Hebrew, the very same word for Thanksgiving Psalm is the same word for Thanksgiving sacrifice that you find in Leviticus 7. Todah. There's no separation between the two. It's a helpful reminder that these, once again, it's a little bit about this foreignizing thing, is that what's going on in Leviticus is simply an, an extraction that is put into a narrative about what went on sometimes. In the, but it's, Leviticus is a book. Same thing with Psalms. It's an anthology of psalms that were possibly originally prayed in a priestly context. And the fact that they're collected in two different places can give us a false impression that somehow they're disconnected from one another, when in fact they're probably quite closely connected with each other. So um, Thanksgiving psalms are very common outside of the Bible as well. Uh, you th see Thanksgiving psalms to various deities like Marduk um, for healing. The one who strikes and the one who heals in Lolo Belnameki or other, plenty of other texts. Um, finally, praise. Uh, texts from the Near East also are filled with uh, praise songs, songs to deities for various reasons, gods and goddesses, hymns to Ishtar, hymns to Marduk, hymns to Ashur, hymns to Baal, and so forth. And at first glance, they look very similar to psalms in the Bible, but I think this is the place where biblical psalms differ most markedly. And the main difference, I think, is what the gods are praised for. If, one, if you take it and read this text, say, for example, a hymn to Ishtar, um, one thing that you notice very, very often is that the gods in Mesopotamia, for example, are praised for what they do in the world of the gods. As if there's a world of gods here, there's a world of humans here. Ishtar, she's so great and powerful. She's so beautiful. She, and this particular one is always about most of the things in the Near East are. Fertility and war, right? Because those are really big. So Ishtar is a god of sex and war, right? Weird, but yes. So she's so sexual. She's so beautiful. She's so desirous. And that's it. And like, well, what does she do for humans? Oh, that's not getting addressed a lot. Almost ever. And that's one of the things where, uh, that I find is, is really, really remarkable about the nature of the biblical psalms is that the biblical psalms are not simply focused on what God is doing up there somewhere and how God is so great among the gods. That does happen. God is great among the gods and all the other gods who are not gods realize the, the sovereignty of the one true God. That is definitely true and that definitely happens. But the narrative of the Bible is so much more about God's relationship to creation and God's relationship to his people, this divine movement toward creation and toward God's people, so that God's narrative is primarily among his people. That God is enthroned among the praises of his people. Not as if he depends. In total freedom, the Lord moves toward creation. And yet... That relationship with the creature is critical. And once it is praised again and again and again throughout the Psalter, this relationship is based on a term that I bet you heard of before, often loving kindness in English or something like that. 
right? Chesed in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and that's what I want to talk about uh, finally, the Lord of the Psalms and um, Psalm 103. What I think really is the contribution to the Psalter, the contribution of the Psalter to our spiritual life is the Lord that the Psalter praises. It's about the nature of who God is. It's the whole reason there can be a Psalter. Um, because of the nature of the Lord as in the Lord's self, in God's self-revelation to his people, the Lord is chesed, loving kindness, loyalty, steadfast love. So you might be familiar with this. Um, when Moses asked the Lord to reveal his glory, show me your glory, after the golden calf incident in Exodus 32, right? And the Lord says, nah, my presence is not going to go with you because I might destroy you on the way. You need to get out of my way or you're going to get destroyed. And Moses says, nope, not doing that because we don't have anything else. What else would distinguish us from all the other nations if you don't go with us? And the, and the Lord says, okay. And then Moses says, okay, but show me what you're all about. Because you said, you said Lord, you said, I, I love you. I cherish you. I have a special relationship with you. I see you face to face. So just show me then. I, you know my name. What's your name? And so then he says, okay, you go and present yourself to me on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and I will reveal myself to you. In Exodus 34, he comes down. And the Lord gives this speech where he proclaims his own name, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, right? But not leaving the guilty unpunished, punishing the children, you know, the sins of the fathers to the children and their children to the third and fourth generations. But see, so has mercy and compassion, I might have skipped this first, but mercy and compassion to thousand generations, but, and this is the way I always describe it to my students, I say, do you notice any sort of distinction here, any kind of something that doesn't seem equal? Mercy and judgment to thousands, mercy to thousands, excuse me, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin to thousand generations, and not leaving sins unpunished, but punishing the children for the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation. And they say, yeah, a thousand is not the same as four. And I say, that's right. In... In American system of justice and Western systems of justice, we normally value things that are balanced. There's this and there's this. And justice is blind. None of that is true in the Bible. Justice is wide-eyed. The Lord is biased. And he's weighted toward mercy. It's true that God is just. It's not to say God is unjust or just will not show judgment, but weighted toward mercy. And I think that's, in fact, why you have to give but don't get the sense that I'm just going to leave the guilty unpunished because, you know, people who are going to forgive you a thousand times are going to be people that what? That I take advantage of. You're so merciful. You're so kind. I'm just going to keep taking advantage of you. It's like, well, you can't get away with it forever. But the nature of God's being bent toward mercy, being bent toward forgiveness is what allows sinners to pray to that God when they know they don't deserve it. Deserving it is not the point. That's what gratis means, grace. It's gratis. Yeah, of course you don't deserve it. Pray it anyway. Why? God's just so merciful. That is the key to what I think the Psalms offer. It's the key to what the Bible offers. That's the central statement about who God is and why you could pray a sinner's prayer in Psalm 103, um, which we should close with. Psalm 103, if there is anything that God is, God is love. Right? You think about this. Oh, that's the New Testament. First John, God is love. Yeah. Mm, no. You think God, John made that up? No. That is revealed on the very same mountain, Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. God is loving kindness. God is truth, full of grace and truth. It sounds like John. So um, this is the closest thing that one has to a creed or an answer to the question, what is God? 
And I think sometimes we get this mixed up. It's what I highly, I highly recommend. I said student, my students, it's like if you only memorize one thing in the whole Bible, please memorize Exodus 34, 6 and following. And say it again and again and again. And that's not just me, because the Bible does that. What you see is this formula, people call it the mercy formula or the grace formula. It occurs all throughout the Bible. The Psalms are filled with it. This word hesed occurs 127 times in the Psalms. It's talked about more in the Psalms than anywhere else. And it's drawn upon when people need forgiveness because they turn to a merciful God. So, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, and who crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses. This is, the re- this is a reference to Exodus thirty-three, thirty-four. His deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And we'll stop at that point. That is what I think the Psalms offer us, the, the Lord of the Psalms. There are a lot of things, but um, what they remind us of is the God that is deserving of our praise and the God who responds to the cries of his people, even when and maybe even especially when they don't deserve it, because that's what God's all about. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They're free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.